Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who is leading the change? What are the key skills to learn and how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0? In episode 67 of the podcast, the topic is Manufacturing 5.0. Our guest is Catherine Kelly, Executive Director at the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at the Ohio State University. In this conversation, we talk about the industrial trends statewide in Ohio, the third largest state for manufacturing, and trends nationally across the U.S. on manufacturing firm adoption of Industry 4.0, a transition that the Ohio Manufacturing Institute thinks will take a couple of decades. We explore the Manufacturing 5.0 project, a program that the Ohio Manufacturing Institute is piloting to support the NIST Manufacturing Extension Partnership clients. These firms are supported financially by this public-private partnership to help them on their digital transformation journey to develop new products and customers, expand and diversify markets, adopt new technology, and enhance value within supply chains. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators. Hosted by futurist Trun Arne Inheim and presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. Catherine, how are you? Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm doing really well. Excited to be on the show. Well, I am as excited as can be. Here we have you, PhD in communications, master's degree in rhetoric and head of the Ohio Manufacturing Institute. But even more interesting to me, you are this fitness fanatic. And you and I talked about this earlier. That's extremely interesting. Yes, it's one of those things that I've kept up. I think it's a great stress reliever. And you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay in for the long haul. Yes. So Pump and Run, let's cover that first. It's a sporting event with strength challenges and Arnold Schwarzenegger is involved. How did you get involved in that? It's a highly intellectual endeavor. Yes, (laughs) I recognize that. It's deep. Yes. uh, I was lifting at an early age and found this activity that would combine running a 5K with bench pressing, and I thought I would give it a try. And I uh, got as far as a fifth female in, in the competition. And, you know, of course, then COVID happened. But uh, it was a fun event, especially having Arnold Schwarzenegger with the starter gun at the beginning of the race. That does sound like it adds some inspiration. And you said you started running at 13 with your dad. That must be another inspiration. It was. And it's something that I think having those conversations with him while running, you know, I I don't think I would have gotten the opportunity otherwise with five girls in the family. So it was my special time with him and I kept going with it. I haven't stopped. I think that was uh, was a wise move. And then on the side, you've been doing some work in manufacturing as well. Uh, let's talk about that for a second, right? So rhetoric and then on to various, uh, you know, supercomputing job here, I see. So be, you've been on straddling kind of public relation communications, but also always on the physical infrastructure side and then also some time in the mayor's office. So you, you like policy and technology. 
That is the intersection and, and throw in some research, uh, you know, trying to dig into what is needed and ask the questions of those who we are serving, starting in the mayor's office, working with the IT firms in the area. And, you know, everybody wanted to be Austin. We wanted to be tech town. So that's something that was really you know, I think at, at the crux of, of my start and then working in the supercomputing center, we had a program called Blue Collar Computing that uh, focused on computer simulation and modeling for small and mid-sized businesses. And that formed the foundation for what I do at the Ohio Manufacturing Institute. Hmm. So Columbus, Ohio and manufacturing. Ohio is one of the heartlands of the U.S., right? third largest manufacturing state. Tell me a little bit about Ohio and what's going on there right now. Well, we are the third largest manufacturing state in the U.S. behind California and Texas. And it's the largest employer, also the largest you know, in GDP in the state. So very large presence. Uh, we make a lot of things in this state, everything from aerospace to automotive. We're the number one polymer manufacturer in the U.S., you go down from the the smallest widget all the way up to the largest missiles and we make it right here in the state. So a lot of need from the manufacturers on all different levels. It's definitely a microcosm of what's happening nationally and even internationally. The Ohio Manufacturing Institute, can you enlighten me a little bit on the mandate? It's, It's one of the fairly early manufacturing institutes that were created on the federal level. Is that right? On the state level, we work hand-in-hand with the Ohio Manufacturers Association, which is part of the National Association of Manufacturers. And we work with both the Ohio and the the federal NIST Manufacturing Extension Partnership, really focusing in on the needs of of manufacturers and particularly the small and mid-sized firms. In this state, the small and mid-sized firms, uh, which we categorize as 250 or less employees, makes up more than 90% of the state's manufacturers. So you know, being able to help them innovate and to support them, of course, workforce looms large right now with all manufacturing. So we've developed industry vetted policies. We always start with their input first, and then we develop the policies and programs that support their needs. And then I'm, I'm leading the coordination of our, our Bachelor of Science degree in engineering technology that was based on uh, focus groups and some labor O-net skills data to determine what are the engineering technology needs for the future. And then the work that we're doing with NIST right now is focusing on a digital transformation readiness assessment uh, to help manufacturers with industry 4.0 adoption. Wow, so many threads here. And so you've been working for the Ohio Manufacturing Institute since 2013. And as far as I understand it now, you're both partnering on state-level grants and initiatives and, you know, working with the MEP system federally. And thirdly, also directly with the university, which is hosting you, I guess, as a center. And you said also on the future of technology and the city and, and other things. What are some of the more interesting projects that you can share some some detail from? I, I know we're going to talk in a second about the manufacturing 5.0, but what are some of the other projects that you are running sort of concretely here? Ones that I, I did previously, that blue color computing project at the supercomputing center, that was something that we developed and I learned a lot about manufacturers in the early to mid 2000s and their temperament for technologies. 
if it doesn't fit within the culture, it's not going to work. One story I tell is that I was working with the manufacturing extension partnership in Cleveland called Magnet. The CEO at the time, Dan Barry, we were talking to him about, look at this great program we have and we can provide computer simulation and modeling where all the engineer has to do is fill in the parameters. They don't need a PhD in high performance computing. They can develop, for example, they can figure out the strength of the metal and the joining of the metals through the simulation program. And he sat there and he said, well, I can see the typical manufacturer, maybe 40% have engineers on staff. And the owners may be deciding whether they're going to hire an engineer to support this program that you're presenting to me, or whether they're going to get the boat out on Lake Erie this summer. Well, exactly. And and this is, I guess, the heart of the discussion we're having here, because in smaller companies and you know, sometimes smaller companies in startups, they're sort of growing fast and they're rapidly becoming larger and they can afford after a while to hire a bunch of engineers. But in the sort of like SME sector that you're talking about here, sometimes called mom and pop shops, whatever their size, they historically haven't had an enormous amount of engineers. And even if they have had engineers, correct me if I'm wrong, those are not computer or digital engineers. They might be process engineers or operational experts of some sort. So what we're really talking about here is quite a big lift. It is a big lift. And the adaptation of these small to mid-sized firms to industry 4.0 or smart manufacturing or you know what we've coined manufacturing 5.0 or operations technology 5.0, that could take 20 to 30 years to reach small to mid-sized firms at the current rate of change. I stopped at that when you said that last time. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering, one, how did you come up with sort of that number, 20, 30 years? I mean, it's decades. And if that is the case, what, what are we going to do? That, that doesn't bode well, I guess, for transitioning to digital. Well, I, I think it's really going to be based on customer demand that comes from the OEMs who can afford the transition. They have the teams, they have the resources to move toward Industry 4.0. They will be demanding it from their tier one and beyond suppliers. So it's coming. Uh, and if you think about it, I mean, the ERP diffusion took more than 40 years, you know, starting in 1973. So it didn't happen overnight. And Industry 4.0 is not going to happen overnight. So I think we'll have some fits and starts. But I think with that thumbnail reference to 20 to 30 years, you know, a couple generations, I think you're dealing with everything from legacy equipment to a culture. You know, I think that this is more as much of a business problem than a technical problem. So the business solutions are going to be needed before the technical solutions can profoundly affect the business. And they're going to face the threats of failing to invest in those technologies and falling behind. And so we're going to end up with these manufacturing haves and have-nots if you know the structures are not put in place. And so that's the concern that we have is that either the small and mid-sized companies are not addressing what is coming toward them. Sometimes it's snowballing and others it's trickling depending on the industry. But what is going to allow them to remain competitive and invest in the technologies. Also, you know, sometimes they're getting sold a bill of goods by 
consultants. You know, the consultants are talking to them about one-off automation projects, but not really looking at it from a systemic level. And if you have a series of standalone automation projects, but you don't have some kind of continuous improvement discipline as part of the managerial culture, I think that moving toward that digital operations technologies is going to prove more difficult. If we move then for a second to what you guys are calling manufacturing 5.0, and now I'm aware that there's terminology being introduced. You know, in the U.S., industry 4.0 hasn't historically even been the big term, right? Smart manufacturing was something that sort of caught on and has become the kind of the policy term for this Industry 4.0 being a European term from Klaus Schwab, I guess, with the World Economic Forum, well, as much as European as that organization is, is international. But you have now this project that you call Manufacturing 5.0. Talk to me a little bit about how that got started and in this course that you're bringing in companies to take with you on this journey, how you see the evolution and what you're asking manufacturers to think about when it comes to this evolution, I guess, even from like... 3.0, which is it correct that you're kind of seeing this as like the beginning of a transitional technology process, but it's really kind of lean manufacturing with some bells and whistles on it. And then 4.0 being, I guess, focusing on true lean and with some digital tools. And then there's this 5.0, which I'll let you describe, which must be a much more complete set of actions. Yes, that's accurate. So, I mean, we could even go back to 1.0 and that would be you're using the mechanicals, water and steam power there. We found a nail factory in France that's a heritage historical site that still produces nails in this fashion. So there's there's at least one firm that exists, you know, and then you have manufacturing 2.0 and that's really more of the American production system with Ford is the most popular example of that. The assembly line, continuous flow, specialized tools, And then, as you said, manufacturing 3.0, that's a production connected to ERPs and PLCs. And then 4.0, as you mentioned, is a continuous improvement culture. And then with 5.0, that's the machine-to-machine data transfer and connection. So it really is more, you would say, well, that's industry 4.0, and it is. But we decided to be a little tongue-in-cheek in some sense and try to make sense of industry 4.0 for companies. Last year, uh, we were asked to conduct uh, national conversations with manufacturers through NIST-MEP. And we spoke to dozens of manufacturers, small to mid-sized, who are clients of the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, everywhere from Alaska to Florida and in between. And we found that they really don't understand what Industry 4.0 is. So we really separated out the operations technology to identify that. So in the case of Manufacturing 5.0 or Operations 5.0, really it's Industry 4.0 is the ERP. We we heard how updates and installations of ERPs during uh, the year before COVID, you know, that improved the cash and competitive positions of a number of businesses, you know, it's the world of top-down control, computer science and information technology. But information technology is not the same thing as operations technology. And, you know, in some cases, the IT staff is separated from the OT staff. And some manufacturers are still like this, where R&D is completely separated from manufacturing. You have to throw something over the fence. And so IT can't run your machines for you. I mean, There has to be a connection to the operations technology. 
you know, at least that's our argument. And then you, you have the Internet of Things, and that's also being used interchangeably with Industry 4.0. And we depart from convention here. My colleague, Ned Hill, who is a faculty member in the John Glenn College of Public Affairs and has served on, on the NIST MEP board, national board, worked very closely with Ohio Manufacturers Association for many years. You know, we see some use IoT and, and Industry 4.0 as synonyms, and they really mean everything digital. And so we see that there's, you know, there's a metric that places a digital investment into the, the limited world of IoT. And the companies need to ask, you know, does the outcome affect the top line of, of the income statement? So to us, the IoT is the realm of sales, whether it's B2B or B2C. And, you know, that also includes smart products, you know, with either information or remote controls as part of that value proposition. So that's where that cloud storage and remote analytics supply. And then operations technology, our research indicates there are five generations. These are digitally connected smart machines at the 5.0 level and coordinating them is the essence of, of what we call next lean. And, you know, we also include legacy capital equipment combined with legacy electronics. How do you combine those into the mix? I remember going on a tour of, of a factory in Northeast Ohio, and they have machines there that have been around since the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And, you know, they've attached them to sensors and they're still using them. They still do what they're supposed to do. You know, we've looked at that with small and mid-sized firms and we're trying to figure out, you know, what can they afford? Is there going to be a renting model? And then if they attach themselves to a particular software solution, are they tied into that? Is there an opportunity to have open source options? There are a lot of questions that come out of this. What I'm sensing here is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this 5.0 concept that you have is one way to think of it is kind of when you have fully breached and resolved, I guess, also the IT-OT divide when sort of like information systems is one culture. And mm -hmm. by the way, culture seems to be important here. You were speaking about that earlier. It's when technology is not fully divorced from the workforce. In other words, there's a synergy, a true kind of spirit of, you know, the technology is actually working for people as opposed to just being something that one is treading down people's throats that you get stuck with. It's not just sort of a machine to machine communication per se, which I guess a lot of these early attempts of 4.0 implementation is just like, let's just pick up the shiniest object, you know, whether it is robotics or some sort of robotics with analytics on it but you haven't really understood what you're doing, right? And you're not maybe buying the right thing or you're buying it too early or you're not training your workforce. You're talking about a situation where all of those factors are a little bit more under control in some sort of ideal state with a synergy that's really coming out between kind of people and technology. That's sort of what I'm reading into what you're saying here. Yes, and I, th I think that that's a theme that comes out of some of the guests that you've had on Augmented. Well, that's certainly something a lot of people hope for. So I was just curious when you guys are thinking about this and, and, and sort of how you train organizations to get sort of to that point, what are some of the things on the cultural side that you are focused on when you actually work with individual companies? What we're working on right now, if I can take the digital transformation project as an example, is you know, we, we see this path toward digital maturity. It's a journey that manufacturers 
take to achieve that digitization. And it involves deployment of best practices, but also improving key performance indicators. So that KPIs is in the lifeblood of a lot of manufacturers. So what we want is for these small and mid-sized manufacturers to act and invest to digitally transform their organizations and achieve operational excellence and growth. So, you know, they have to quantify their current state of digital maturity, and they do that through this assessment, which after they've answered all the questions, it provides them with a number of where they stand. And this is a pilot right now, but as more companies participate in the assessment, then the company can look and see where they align with others in, you know, in their size, their industry, where they are with their number of employees, and uh, they can go into each section and determine, you know, are there business practices at a level that others are? Are there smart products? Where are the gaps? So they need to focus on those areas of weakness and constraints that will limit an improved performance and then plan and collaborate. But this is not just the CEO. This is the team. It's your IT director. It's your COO. It can't be an assessment where you're sitting there filling it out on the computer. You really need to bring your team in and focus in on what everyone agrees is the level at which you're at at that particular time. And we've involved the MEP because they have a consultative model and they are entrenched and lean. And we see this as a way for us to build this next lean. And I know there are other groups that are focusing in on this and we really don't have a fully formed idea of what next lean looks like, but we're building on that based on, on what we're doing with these companies but ultimately trying to develop a foundation for that. Uh, So they go back and are continuously reviewing where they stand. We're thinking about once every six months would be a good uh, interval at no less than once a year. And then that repeated assessment of frequent intervals can really drive their ongoing digital improvements. So Catherine, when I'm looking through the program you have here, you have gamified it too. So in this report, there's even a a board game that you've designed for this process? Well, we started out that way. And that was something that got lost in the mix. Well, it didn't get lost. There was a decision made that that might not be the best approach. So that game actually actually transitioned into a gimbal walk. (laughs) So we figured that that would be the best approach if the company chose to do so after the assessment, you know, on their next steps, they should come up with steps to make progress. You know, we have a spreadsheet that they can fill out. And then with MEP, they can walk through and do that gimbal walk, you know, based on what they learn from the assessment. That's one tool that they can use. But in the mix of tools, I would love to do it when our student researcher, she's actually now being employed as a lean improvement engineer. She went through and and set it out with, you know, warehouse and production. And we started to look at the blocks and it looked like a game board, but it looked a little bit too close to Monopoly. So we decided to scratch it. (laughs) So just for context, so Gemba Walk is, of course, part of the lean philosophy. But what is it and what is it not in your particular kind of implementation here? So there are some steps for performance evaluation. I noticed earlier you were also saying that you were assessing different factors of the company in like zero to five in terms of readiness, and then they have to walk along this improvement path? What we're trying to do with with the Gimba Walk is to help 
this improvement team that has gathered to do the assessment to identify how and why the digital weaknesses exist. So anecdotally, you know, we've walked through a company and what we were told that the company was at a certain point when we actually viewed where they were, they were in quite a different place. We even walked through one time and they said, oh, we've made all these improvements. And it really was just, they had a shoot for these plastic bags for the, the workers to gather the shredded material. And then one of their machines was smoking. And then we turned the corner and there were all these pallets. And the general manager was saying, I, I don't know why these pallets are here. So with this pilot project, we realized that the advanced pre-meeting that we had where we walked through the plant when the company got stuck on a certain question, we had identified things just being outsiders looking at this with fresh eyes, some things that they had not seen because they're in it every day. Well, you know, one thing that's so interesting with the concept of a Gemba walk is that it actually literally is a walk in the sense yes. that you were talking about IT and OT earlier, and certainly at Tulip, a lot of our engineers have had to do that walk themselves, right? So we're walking the shop floor. Our, our founders uh, slept on the shop floor for a while to just understand this. This is not something where you can sit and create a system in the abstract that works for some sort of abstract engineering situation because the shop floor is the shop floor, right? And things happen yes. in and around. You can't model everything. Right. I mean, it can't be done by reviewing the metrics on a computer screen. I mean, you are talking about a problem in a distance conference room. You really a actually have to get out there. And you know, I'm not stereotyping because I know that there are a lot of the C-suite that are down on the floor you know, on a regular basis. They're having their meetings every morning. I know plenty of manufacturers to do that. You know, but having a purposeful walk and talking to those at all levels of production in all departments, you know, will really help you identify those digital weakness and gaps. Depending on your assessment, you know, your production might be in good shape, but it might be your warehouse, you know, or supply chain that's the issue. And so being able to prioritize problems, you know, and establish those improvement projects that I think it's a it's a good tool. And and we're really glad that we hit upon that instead of our monopoly game. Because uh, I think this will definitely be more impactful. That's the challenge, though, right, is scale. Because like you said, if it takes 20 to 30 years on average with serious new improvements of technological character on, on the shop floor for all of these reasons, digital transformation is almost like it's something where you don't really have the luxury of that time, right? Because digital generations will switch off much faster than that. And, you know, by the time... Some people have learned one version, the next version of digital is going to be almost unrecognizable. How, how do you think, because you seem like an optimistic person, what do you think of change? I mean, you, are you optimistic that even though some of these things will take time, and I guess that's okay, that you can indeed make a transformation, a digital transformation of the industry towards some sort of 5.0 state? Is, is that going to be possible within this generation? You know, I think it is. I, if they have a roadmap, we establish this in a way that they might be nervous, for example, as I mentioned before, about taking captive by, a, you know, some kind of proprietary software. If they go through this assessment process, it might make it clear to them that 
There are some things they can do operationally before they make the decision, but really it's about taking one project as a, as a time to move toward having that more digitally connected operations technology and building those tools. And it, it may be connecting that legacy equipment with sensors or, you know, having the, the video capture. I mean, there's a manufacturer about a half an hour away from us and is a tier one supplier of a large manufacturing company here. And the president is the master of Pokeyoke and everything has a barcode. Everything has video cameras. I mean, he's got it all decked out. And when the OEM contacts him and say, you had a, an error in one of you know the items that you sent us, he can go back to the millisecond and say, Nope, actually not. <laughs> so it's, you know, I think it's definitely possible. And that's a mid-sized company. That's fascinating. And But one of the things that you seem to be driving at is that the generation technology that we should be aiming for is actually a flexible type of technology that to fully implement it will take a little while, but we should strive towards these more simpler. I mean, the industry jargon on this is like low code or no code technologies where you are involving many, many more people in the process. And it's not like it's one decision, like we have implemented this system or we are going to, and then everyone has to prepare forever and train forever. And then eventually you come to some sort of state where you have implemented the system. What we're looking for, I guess, is systems that are easier to implement so that you don't have this generation issue where you're like, well, the next five years we're implementing this massive monolithic thing that, by the way, will lock us into one vendor. You're hoping for systems that are much more open-ended. You mentioned open source, certainly standardized interoperable components that kind of plug and play with each other and don't take you know a PhD to operate. Exactly. And I think uh, you know, learning those lessons when I did with the Blue Collar Computing Project, you took the words out of my mouth, you know, for example, cybersecurity systems that are plug and play, you know, and self-monitoring, something that does not require a consultant to come on board to complete. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of concerns about the costs of becoming compliant. And it's been a difficult task for, for some of these small companies. Yeah, right. Because if you only have one engineer or you're about to hire one because you're going to implement a system, then first of all, that person gets a lot of responsibility on their shoulder, but also the rest of the company, you know, they're essentially helpless, right? They're just receivers of, of whatever, hopefully, improvements of their work process. But I guess, you know, this goes for anyone's work process, right? It's difficult to change what you're doing, and especially if you don't really see, you know, individually, you can't really see that it's helping you. Yes. Yeah, because the benefits sometimes are spread out and the benefits are, are abstract and they're only visible to the managers or something. That's really demotivating sometimes. I mean, especially if whatever it is, whether it's an app or some other kind of solution that can be integrated into the operations, it's something, like you said, it's the plug and play option. But again, also it has to make sense to what's happening in the systems that they've set up. I think some clear guidance for these small to mid-sized companies is needed. So I wanted to touch on one thing that you do. You produce and host the Manufacturing Tomorrow podcast. That's a fun project, but it's not just fun. You're actually educating people as you go along. I've, I've listened to some episodes there. What got you started with that? 94 episodes since 2014. You're an early podcaster. I'm ancient. <laughs> 
I started it because I really wanted to give voice to the manufacturers. And it's fascinating every time I, I go into a manufacturing plant and see what is produced and how they started the company and what they're doing in the future and how they're dealing with what the environment is, whatever it is they're producing. It's exhilarating hearing their stories. And, you know, I, I intersperse it with some of the service providers, you know, or, you know, new technologies that are available. Of course, I'm definitely looking at your podcast as a way to come up with some guests that could inform uh, the public, the manufacturers and the policymakers who listen to the show. I particularly am I'm interested in the stories of women manufacturers, uh, of which we have a few, you know, only 5% of manufacturers that are in leadership positions are women. So I'm always interested in what they have to say and how they got to their position. Some really great conversations that I've had over the years with them. Well, then I should introduce you to one of my upcoming guests who just started a Women in Manufacturing podcast. So that should be a good introduction. Oh, definitely. It's one of those things uh, I, I went to interview Lakanda Dagger, who's the head of Velvet Ice Cream in Eastern Ohio. And uh, that was one of my favorites because I, I got some ice cream afterwards. That was wonderful. <laughs> I like ice cream too. <laughs> yes. And then uh, just the story of her sisters and her all head up different areas of the company. And then moving over to Western Ohio, there's a supplier for Walmart was introduced to me uh, by the, the VP for manufacturing for Walmart, Ashley Thompson of 50 Strong. And she she produces water bottles. You know, she was a, she's a second generation manufacturer. She left to focus on corporate law and then came back with her family and took up a um, subsidiary of her father's business to focus on these water bottles. And now she accosts you know, people who are, are buying water bottles in the store to ask them why they liked what they picked and what are the features that are attracted to them. And I asked her, what have you done that uh, you never thought you would be doing five years ago? And she said, I never thought I'd be schlepping water bottles through the TSA going to Arkansas. Yeah, there are many, many stories in manufacturing that deserve to be told and all honor to you for telling some of those stories. We're storytellers and, and I understand your dad was a storyteller and your uncle's stories are in the Smithsonian. Yes, that's true. My great uncle's stories are in the Smithsonian and uh, my dad has his jokes and stories and you know I fell a little far from the tree so I end up trying to reciprocate by bringing in other people who can tell fantastic stories about the genesis of their organization. And I think that folklore aspect of it, yeah, you can find yourself in a story. Exactly. I mean, you find yourself in a story and to the point you were making about Ohio, right? It's not just a statistic that it is the third largest kind of manufacturing state. It obviously means something for the identity of people in that industry. You're not just in an industry to earn money. This is something your parents might have done. It goes in families and, and, and it means something in the territory, in the region you're based. It has a history and that's important. It absolutely does. And, and I'm humbled every time I hear the story of someone who is able to produce something, whether it's casters or you know, a injected molded door for a car or um, you know, someone who's able to produce ice cream. 
I'm fascinated, and it seems like Ohio is in good hands when it comes to moving away from industry 1.0, it seems, <laughs> and uh, on the good track towards five. Yeah. So congratulations with that work, Catherine, and I wish you best of luck the next 30 years trying to close the gap to get everybody on that bandwagon, or maybe yeah, maybe you'll do it in 20 or, or perhaps 10. I mean, looks like you're on good way here. It looks like we're all going to have to keep running. Well, see, there you go. We're going to all have to be marathoners, though, if we're going to accomplish that. So thank you so much for taking the time and uh, stay in touch. I'm, I'm curious to see, really, how quickly this 5.0 program is going to take in, you know, in your state. All right. And uh, I look forward to hearing your upcoming podcast. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 67 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was Manufacturing 5.0. Our guest was Catherine Kelly, Executive Director at the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. In this conversation, we talked about industrial trends in Ohio, across the U.S., and nationally, and we explored the Manufacturing 5.0 project. My takeaway is that Ohio, along with Michigan, California, and Texas, is where the bulk of U.S. manufacturing happens, and that's why tracking their thinking is important. To think that it would take decades to roll out Industry 4.0 in Ohio is mind-boggling. Can it be true? This is why we need a new approach to industrial tech, one where training needs are drastically reduced and technology can be implemented in days and weeks, not months and years. Luckily, I believe that opportunity exists. Now let's just roll it out test it and see if it can happen. For sure, training is key and government and state-sponsored programs are an important component. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 49, Lean Manufacturing in the USA, episode 46, Manufacturing Training in Massachusetts, or episode 30, Rethinking Workforce Learning. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, a connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.